Hello, Reviving Virtue listeners. I am doing something a little different this week. Recently, I've been producing some short videos on YouTube where I look at some tweets and I think about them and explain what's happening in these tweets. And I make a video with them and I, you can follow me along while I read the tweets because I'm doing a video within a video. And I thought I'm going to share the most recent one I did because it's relatively long, about 30 minutes. It focuses on the Federal Reserve, the 2% inflation, the idea of the dual mandate. And also, I don't have an interview for you this week, and I've been reading multiple books right now. I have an interview coming up in about two or three weeks with a professor at the University of Arizona. We're going to discuss dual language teaching uh, in the state of Arizona and the big controversy happening over that right now. And we're also going to look at Paulo Freire and his book, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That's going to be coming up. I'm going to be reaching out to a few other academics, even though I remember I mentioned in my introductory episode that I, I was going to try to stay away from only talking to academics, but it seems that's what I'm doing. But I'm going to start trying to branch out from there. I'm not sure if I'm going to stick to the every Tuesday schedule for the podcast. I, I think I'm going to focus a little bit more on these shorter ones for YouTube and do more big productions for the podcast where I can do some more background research and try to make it really really powerful. So because of the amount of work that goes into producing just one podcast, I know people listening to this who have produced podcasts understand the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes. I'm going to cut it down to releasing on Tuesdays, but they won't be on a weekly schedule. I think what, we'll, I think what I'm going to do is post my YouTube clips that I think are the best, the best ones on Tuesdays, and then there'll be special ones, the Reviving Virtue features as well. I'm thinking out loud and thinking about how I might organize this and have like a reviving virtue feature with an interview and then reviving virtue from my YouTube clips. And so far I've done three YouTube clips and they're all focused on economics for the most part, which is something I have been asked to focus on because that's something that's a passion of mine. So you're going to listen to this one today. It's going to be focused on economics, the Federal Reserve, as I already said. And I'm reading some books right now that I want to weave into the podcast that have to do with virtues, that have to do with the idea of rituals, uh, how those weave into our culture, and some other topics that are on my mind. Then it's going to be some more John Dewey as well. So I hope you can enjoy this, this clip that's on YouTube. Please go to my YouTube channel. L look for me on, on YouTube, Reviving Virtue. Subscribe. Check out these videos. You know, I had a legitimate video go minor viral for me, at least. It got over 1,300 views in about two days, which I found kind of exciting. It's one of the reasons why I'm focusing a little more on YouTube. I also produce every one of these podcasts for YouTube. So there's a video of every single one of these that you've listened to so far. You know, I'm here in Tucson right now, and it's about 106 as I'm recording this. And I had to turn the fans off in my office so I could record, and I'm starting to sweat here. You know, I'll tell a story. I was walking out of my office at the university and I have about a seven minute walk to my car, which is in a parking garage. And this walk is all outside. And it was, it was 110, at least that's what my phone said. And I got to say, I've been living here in Tucson for six years now and it's, it gets hot. But what has happened normally in Tucson is it will get to about a, it will hit 108. And 108 seems to be like the worst it had ever been. And you have like one to three days of that for the summer. But otherwise, most of the high temperatures were in 103 to 105. Those of you who live on the East Coast or anywhere where it's humid, that probably sounds absolutely horrid. And it is hot. But when, the, when you hear that joke in a way, it's a dry heat. There, there is truth to that. 
when it's 103 out, it's not like 103 in New York uh, with 100% humidity because that's like the end of the world. Here, it's hot and a little uncomfortable, but you can just go about your day. But I, what I want to say is that at 110 on that seven minute walk I did, I was about four minutes into it and my entire body was just on fire. My face felt like someone had taken one of those heating pads that you use for your back and just press was pressing it into my face. It was just incredibly, incredibly uncomfortable and alarming, to be honest with you. Uh, the changes that are happening in this world right now are really concerning, especially with someone with a young child. I also think that this episode you're about to listen to, uh, with the focus on the 2% inflation and how the Federal Reserve institutes monetary policy, ties into uh, global warming, how that has manifested, and the mechanisms that happen behind it. Now, I don't focus on that, but one of the people I talk about on here is Bruno Latour, and Latour spent a lot of time on this, especially towards the end of his life. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this episode and be looking out for the next featured interview, which will be out in a few weeks. And again, thank you for all your support and head on over to YouTube, subscribe, give me a like, it really helps the algorithms, helps me out. And we'll see you soon. Welcome to Reviving Virtue, a podcast where we face the urgent challenges of today's world by exploring the crucial role of uncovering together a coherent moral narrative for our time. I'm your host, Jeffrey Anthony, on a quest to tackle liberalism's quandary and pave the way towards a more unified society. Join me on this journey as we delve into ethics, philosophy, and community building, seeking to create a common understanding that fosters human flourishing and harmony. Welcome to Reviving Virtue. I'm back again today. I want to look at another tweet. This one has to do with the Federal Reserve, inflation, unemployment, something called the dual mandate. Let's start right here with what Joe Weisenthal from Bloomberg News has to say. He's being somewhat sarcastic. This is his style. You know who else thought wages had to come down to defeat inflation? So this is from a book. Let's read this real quick. From the Fed's perspective, declining prices were the goal, not the problem. High unemployment did not hurt, but helped. That's important. A surplus of labor, again, that right there, a surplus of labor, very important. Forced wages down generally as more workers competed for fewer jobs. That's basic economics. Falling wages led to moderating price inflation. Even as late as April 1921, one member of the Federal Reserve Board, Adolph Miller, argued it was still too early to ease credit conditions. In his judgment, wages were still too high. I don't know who Adolph Miller is. I googled him. He's just one of these early guys, part of the Federal Reserve Board. American industry could not return to safe and sound conditions, Miller explained, until the contraction produced what is called the liquidation of labor. The phrase he conceded sounded a little offensive. Strong agreed that labor must blah, 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 blah. Okay. So this is, has to do with this whole ongoing debate right now about raising interest rates into uh, a fairly good job market right now for most Americans and with the intent and purposes of creating unemployment. This has to do with my previous video, if you had seen that. Now let's scroll down. This guy here, I don't follow him, but I think I do now. Now, I'm not a big fan of these joke things on Marx. Like, I warned you, dude. I told you, bro. Now, he puts here, before I get to what I responded, a different framing of the dual mandate is to use central banks' ability to coordinate economic activity to produce the minimum size of the reserve army of labor. This is another Marxist framing. That will maintain labor discipline in order to maximize exploitation 
at the same time while avoiding unrest common with high unemployment. So he's arguing that the main role of the Federal Reserve is to exploit labor at the maximum amount possible, which increases the margins of profitability for those who control capital, which are the people who control the industries and the firms and all the money in the country and the world, really, while avoiding you know, societal unrest, which is people going to the streets, burning down symbols of the institutions which perpetuate this exploitation. I'm going to get to the dual mandate in a second. Well, maybe let's go there right now. Before we get to my response, what is the dual mandate? I realized before we get too far, I should define what the dual mandate is. I just finished my master's degree at the University of Arizona, getting a master's in public administration. So I was with a bunch of other people who all wanted to work in government or work in some sort of capacity that's associated with government, like nonprofits and those sorts of things. In that program, one of my classes, a professor asked, so what is the dual mandate? And no one raised their hands. And then I raised my hand and said, what it is. And I realized that a lot of people don't know what the dual mandate is. So let's go over this. So the dual mandate was instituted by Congress in 1977, and it was given as a directive towards the Federal Reserve. And it said that the two goals of the Federal Reserve, this is why it's called a dual mandate, is price stability and maximum sustainable employment. Now, price stability means that's, that's another way of saying inflation, re- keeping inflation down. Let's see here. So the price stability, the committee judges the inflation at the rate of 2%. I'm going to pause right there. Why 2%? I, and many people argue, it's completely arbitrary. 2% actually privileges the people who extend credit and the owners of capital. The good old days, as we like to call it from the 1940s after World War II to about 1973, inflation was in the four and a half, five to seven percent range. It bounced around there. You can just look it up online. Again, give or take a percent, but it was roughly in the four to seven percent range. And now in this post-Volcker, post-Reagan Thatcher revolution of the neoclassical neoliberalism that we're living through now, they decided two percent is what's considered price stability. Again, I argue and many other people argue that's arbitrary and it actually favors the owners of capital over everyone else, you and me. So what what does this say here? As measured by the annual change in the price index for personal consumption expenditure, PCE, is most consistent over longer run with the Federal Reserve statutory mandate. I'm going to skip now to maximum sustainable employment. Many non-monetary factors affect the structure and dynamics of the labor market. It's interesting how they write it this way. By the way, I'm on the Chicago Fed website. This is where I'm getting this from, Chicago Fed. I I like how they they qualify how they measure unemployment with many factors, but when it comes to inflation, which is price stability, they don't qualify it. They just say, we use the price index for personal consumption and expenditure. Interesting, because they're privileging something here uh, by using the language this way, which I'm going to get to in one second. So, Many non-monetary factors affect the structures and dynamics of the labor market, and these may change over time and may not be measurable directly. Accordingly, specifying an explicit goal for employment is not appropriate. That's interesting, but you can specify a specific inflation rate. Interesting. Instead, the committee's decision must be informed by a wide range of labor market indicators. Information about FOMC Participants estimate that of the longer-run normal rate of unemployment, consistent with the employment mandate, can be found in a summary, blah, 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 blah. So this median committee participated estimate that the rate be 4.1%. 
What's interesting about this, this is going to get into something I don't want to get into in this video because I'm trying to keep this short, but there's the idea of zero, just so you know, 0% unemployment is not considered full employment. It's this kind of random number. Again, I say random. They don't like it when I say stuff like that. I consider it random. They're using arbitrary measures to say that, well, full employment can never be everyone having a job. Full employment is somewhere between two and 7%, but they, this is called the, uh, the Phillips curve. You can Google the Phillips curve. I'll, I'll, I'll approach that in a future one. So I want to go back to the first point, price stability. The committee judges that inflation at the rate of 2% as measured by the annual change in the price index for personal consumption expenditure, the PCE, is most consistent over the long run with the Federal Reserve statutory mandate. So let's review that one statement for a moment here. All right, we're going to jump over the chat GPT because I want to talk about this PCE measurement. It's an aggregate of aggregates, meaning that the PCE is comprised of other baskets of goods and services that are also comprised of aggregates that are then weighted to give certain things more weight than others. And they put all these aggregates into aggregates that then gives us a number, this PCE number. And then we magically figure out what the interest rate should be based off of that to keep the inflation rate at 2%. Again, a random, a random number in my opinion. And whatever that number has to be, the mechanism through which they do that is the unemployment. This is what is submerged in all this. How do they keep this? And what is moving here? What's moving is what is considered full employment, which are human beings who want to work, but the market is telling them to sit down. So I'm using ChatGPT here to show you something. I pre-wrote this question so you don't have to watch me type it. I'm going to put it in here and we can see what ChatGPT does. We'll review my question and the response. I'm actually interested in see what ChatGPT says here. All right, so it's talking here. Okay, so while ChatGPT is responding to me, let's read what I asked it. What are the problems with measurement like PCE? Is it because PCE is an aggregation of aggregates? And the way these individual aggregates are composed of what I would term an arbitrary basket of services and consumables is inherently flawed. That's a question I'm asking. These elements, which are then arbitrarily weighted, add up to the overarching aggregate of the PCE. And this makes deciphering a coherent narrative, remember this is all about a narrative, from the PCE nearly impossible and meaningless. It also resembles a witch's brew where random elements from nature are mixed together to divine some mystical insight. I'm making a metaphor there. Let's see what ChatGPT says. PCE or personal consumption expenditure is a measure of the value of the goods and services consumed by individuals. That's our economy, right? It's one of the ways that economists measure the health and direction of an economy. I agree. However, like any aggregate economic measure, PCE has its limitations and potential issues. Here are some potential issues with measurements like PCE. Aggregation, as you identified, the PCE is an aggregate of aggregates, which can indeed make it harder to understand an aggregate measure combined, combines many different kinds of spending into a single figure. This can make it difficult to interpret, and it might be unclear whether changes in the aggregate measures are due to changes in one specific category of spending. This is a big one. Or whether they reflect broader changes in the economy. The PCE includes everything from healthcare to food and beverages, so a change in one category may be offset by changes in others, making the overall change less informative. Now, the choice of baskets. The baskets of goods and services used to calculate the PCE might not accurately represent what the average person buys. 
The weights used to calculate the PCE are based on surveys of what households spend, but this might not fully reflect the wide diversity of consumption patterns in the economy. If the basket of goods and services doesn't reflect what people actually buy, then the PCE could be a less accurate measure of consumption, which directly relates to inflation and all the other things we're talking about, unemployment, the rate of interest that the Federal Reserve sets. So quality changes. The PCE is supposed to reflect changes in the prices of goods and services, but it's hard to adjust for changes in quality. For example, if the quality of a good increases, but its price stays the same, that's effectively like a price decrease. You're getting more for your money, but it's hard to capture these changes in quality in the aggregate measure of the PCE. Now, this is uh, Steven Pinker's whole deal, actually. I I'm not a fan of Pinker. A lot of people love him. A lot of people hate him. Because what he does is he's, hey, the world's getting great. You can buy an iPhone now for the what it would cost. To, you could have bought like a supercomputer 20 years ago. So see how much richer we are? Ah, God. Let's not go down the Pinker uh, rabbit hole right now. So substitution effects. This is a great one. The PCE doesn't fully account for substitution effects. It's the price of one good rises. People might start buying less of that good and more of another good. But if the weight used to calculate the PCE are based on past consumption patterns, then they might not fully reflect the substitution effects. Regional variations. This makes sense. PCE is a nationwide measure, so it doesn't account for regional variations in spending and price levels. For instance, the cost of living in New York City is substantially different from that in rural Kansas. Non-market transactions and underground economy. The PCE does not account for non-market transactions like butter, home production for own use, and also illegal or black market transactions, which can be a significant part of the economy in some cases, or like women staying home, or lots of men nowadays too, to raise their child. These things aren't calculated into this, which I think is absurd. Okay, so while aggregate measures like PCE can provide valuable insights into overall economic trends, it's important to understand their limitations and to use them in conjunction with other data. Now, let's go back to this real quick. This is one of the things about recording this way. Here we go. So they say, though, they're using this as their main way to figure out the rate of inflation and to then how they set their interest rate. Let's go back to where we just were, chat GPT, right? And what we got here... I want to respond to this. I want to say I have this again. I'm going to I re, I, I'm editing here. I wrote this out. I'm going to paste. And I'm saying when I say arbitrary, I mean the human beings sit around and decide which questions they want answered. And then they decide which problems they want to address to, by answering these questions. This process is arbitrary because the people making these decisions are not democratically elected. They are just citizens like you and me. What really matters is who is privileged in the framing of these questions and problems. Now, this is what I was getting at earlier. Let's see what ChatGPT says about this. Okay. Indeed, you raise an important issue of social epistemology and the politics of knowledge production. When humans create these macroeconomic measures like PCE, GDP, CPI, they are making decisions about what gets counted and what doesn't. They're also making decisions about how different aspects of the economy should be weighted relative to each other. These are, as you rightly point out, thank you, are often arbitrary decisions that can have major implications for our understanding of economic activity. These decisions are typically made by economists and statisticians who are indeed not democratically elected. They have professional expertise, often work within governmental and international institutions, but they are not immune from biases, ideologies, or external pressures. These individuals 
and institutions may not be representative of the population as a whole, and their decisions about what to measure and how to measure it may reflect their own perspectives and priorities. The issue they focus on and the ways that they frame those issues can shape public policy, economic theory, and social understanding in ways that privilege certain interests over other. This gets to my whole point. Thank you, ChatGPT. Moreover, their decisions can have significant implications for the allocation of resources. For example, if a particular type of spending is undercounted in measures like PCE, then it might be neglected in economic policy, leading to underinvestment in that area. That's just one of many outcomes that could happen. Hence, it's important to critically examine these measures and the processes by which they created, they're created, and to consider who benefits from them and who might be disadvantaged. It's also important to consider the need for more democratic and inclusive processes in the creation and use of these measures to ensure they better reflect the diverse needs and perspectives of all individuals in society. This is so critical. This is what is driving so much animosity and anxieties in our country right now. It's because these sorts of decisions, the sorts of questions that are being asked, the way they're framed and the context through which they're being asked and then implemented is what it's all about. But we're not part of this discussion because these experts are the ones who are deciding for us because they know better for us. This relates to a book I just finished called The Tyranny of Merit uh, by Michael J. Sandel. And he says, what's become of the common good? Now, Sandel teaches at Harvard. He teaches, I believe, one of the most famous classes there. You can Google him. I believe there's a YouTube video of him showing him teaching in his class. But what I really love about this book is that he lays out this exact scenario that I'm, that I'm talking about here. And this wasn't part of my script that I was planning for today. But as I'm reading the response from ChatGPT, which you saw, I just typed in and let it respond. I'm not working for it to give me the response I'm looking for because I don't need to look for it because this is how it works. I knew it was going to give me this answer. But the, the, the book talks about how this bifurcation in our country where you have these coastal elites, which I was a, one of them, and I'm still kind of an elite because I have a master's degree and I work at a university. But what's happening is we have, we have this way of talking about the way the world works and how the economy works. And we privilege the questions and the ways we frame what we want from the economy in ways that doesn't allow input from other people. And we're not just talking about minorities. We're talking about everyone in this country and especially the people who we see who vote for Trump and who are, who are aligned to the side of this country, who are looking at themselves and think that the country's unfair, the economy is unfair. And, they, and then they build narratives that like immigrants are taking our jobs or the other, the other are doing this to us. The other is really the way that these questions are framed and the way that our institutions are constructed to privilege power in the hands of a very few elite, elite educated PhD economists and, and policy people in Washington, D.C., who are cranking out numbers, who are saying we need to hit 2% inflation and we got to use this PCE measure and we're going to weight things this way because this is the way I was taught. And these things are not good. And in fact, this also reminds me of another book. Oh, I like it when I get on these. So there's a book called We Have Never Been Modern. This book, I will say, is a bit difficult to read, but it's by Bruno Latour, who just passed away earlier this year. This book, The Tyranny of Merit, to go back to this, I highly recommend. This is extremely readable. I, I love this book. I, I, might, I, I might reach out to Michael Sandel and see if he wants to appear on my podcast. But to get back to this, Bruno Latour talks about the whole idea of knowledge creation and how this happens. I'm going to ask ChatGPT here. I'm going to write it over here. 
and not write it real time because I'm a terrible speller and I don't want to embarrass myself. And I'm going to copy and paste. Isn't this the whole point of the career Bruno, Bruno Latour? How knowledge, here, I'll add this, is, see, I can't spell, is created through human designed system and in that nature. Okay. Apologize for the poor spelling. Maybe I've edited that out. Here we go. Indeed, the French philosopher and sociologist Bruno Latour has made significant contributions to our understanding of how scientific knowledge is produced. He is a key figure in the field of science and technology studies, STS, which critically examines the social dimensions of scientific and technological developments. Latour's work focuses on how scientific facts are not simply discovered, but are constructed. This is what I'm getting at through complex processes that involve both humans and non-humans. This doesn't mean that facts are arbitrary or just made up, but rather that they are the product of specific practices, technologies, and social interactions. He emphasizes that the process of producing scientific knowledge is not a straightforward or neutral one, but is influenced by a wide range of social, cultural, and political factors. For example, in his book, Laboratory Life, The Construction of Scientific Facts, Latour illustrates how scientific facts are produced in the laboratory through a variety of practices, including experiments, discussions, writings, and the use of instruments. He shows that these practices are not just technical or methodological, but also involve negotiations, interpretations, and decisions that are influenced by specific social and institutional context of the laboratory. To me, this, that's normative. They're making normative decisions by doing it this way. Okay. Similarly, in his later work, The Actor Network Theory, Latour argues that both humans and non-humans, such as technologies, artifacts, and natural entities, play active roles in the construction of social reality. According to actor network theory, facts are not simply given, but are established through the relationship and networks that form among these various actors. He gets into that into this book, uh, We Have Never Been Modern. I actually haven't read his book where he lays out the entire actor network theory. It's sitting over there. It's I'm going to get to that, but I know he, he gets into this. That's what this book is in. And this book is not too big. That other one is very big. Anyways, a little bit of a detour there. In the context of economics, Latour's work invites us to consider how economic measures like the PCE are not simply neutral reflections of economic reality, but are products of specific practices, technologies, and social interactions. They are shaped by the decisions and assumptions of economists. The methods and tools they use and the social and institutional context in which they work. This perspective can help us critically examine the measures and consider how they might be influenced by a range of social, cultural, and political factors. This is what I'm trying to get at. So when we go back again, the Federal Reserve thing, the committee judges that inflation at 2%. Why? Let's copy and paste this into chat GPT and see what it says here. I'm going to center this again. Here, let's just copy. This is from the Federal Reserve website. Let's see what they say. I know this is a big, this is not concise, but that's okay. It's, it's chat GPT. Let's see what chat GPT says to this. What I'm saying here is that inflation at, let's say five to 7%, I didn't say five to 7%, but that switches from 2% to, I'll say five to 7%, uh, actually is better for us than it is for banks and other owners of interest rate products, not interest rate products, but of, well, they're interest rate products, but of credit. So let's see what it says. Enough of me going blah, 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 blah. You're making an interesting point about the effects of monetary policy decisions, specifically inflation targets on the different sectors of society. Indeed, these decisions are not neutral and can have different implications for different groups. The 2% inflation target is something many central banks around the world have adopted. That's because they work and coordinate together. This is what Latour is talking about. 
They're not independently saying 2% is the best. We're in a global financial system here. We are getting sitting down with them. We, the, our representatives are sitting down with other central bank representatives and they're saying, hey, we're going to shoot for 2%. So you're going to shoot for 2% because that's how the global economy is going to be run because this is how we want to do it. So again, chat GPT is, is not pointing that point out, but it's important. Okay. The 2% inflation target is something many central banks around the world have adopted. The idea is that a low stable rate of inflation can help maintain economic stability. That's an idea, by the way. Prevent harmful deflationary spirals and give the central bank room to use monetary policy to combat economic downturns. Not much room on the downside there. However, who benefits and who loses from this policy can be complex. I don't think it's that complex. Here are a few points to consider. Creditors versus debtors. Inflation reduces the real value of money over time. This means that if you're a debtor, inflation can be good. This is my point because it erodes the value of your debt. I like how they put it that way, though. That's a privileged way of saying it to privilege the owners of capital. If you took out a loan at a fixed interest rate and then inflation rises, you end up repaying your loan with money that's worth less. On the other hand, for creditors, the owners of capital here, inflation is typically bad because it erodes the real value of the money they will get back. So to your point that I made, a shift from low inflation to high inflation environment would indeed be beneficial for debtors and harmful for creditors. How often do you hear that talked about in the mainstream? Wage earners versus asset owners. Wage earners can be hurt by inflation if their wages don't keep up with rising prices. On the other hand, those who own assets that rise in value with inflation, like real estate or stocks, can benefit. So the impact of inflation can also depend on whether you earn most of your income from labor or owning assets. What's interesting is that this has been a strong labor market. This gets back to the original tweet where he were talking about we have strong wages that have, have kept up. In fact, the income group that has seen the, the largest increase in, in, in earnings or in wages, excuse me, in wages is the lowest income bracket. They have gone up the most, which are the ones who have been hurting the most for the last 30, 40 years, thanks to this neoliberal paradigm we live in. And those are the people who took out the most loans and have the most credit and have the most debt. They have won in this scenario. But now this, the, the, the Federal Reserve is, no way, we're going to raise these rates and we're going to punish people now until we can switch it back to the owners of capital being, again, the ones in control rather than labor. Okay. Uncertainty and instability. While a modest increase in inflation might benefit debtors, very high and unpredictable inflation can be hard. But this is just normal. Like we know this. Runaway inflation was terrible. We all know about this. But we were never even coming close to that. And we haven't even been close to that in, in modern time. We, we seem to forget this. Okay. Policy response. Central banks can respond to higher inflation by raising interest rates, which can make new loans more expensive and slow economic growth. This is the point. And this is what creates unemployment. But before we get there, this could hurt debtors who want to borrow more as well as businesses and others who are sensitive to interest rates. Well, we, we saw the interest rate sensitivity in the banks who owned a lot of long, long dated bonds that lost their value. So in relation to Latour's point, the decision to aim for a 2% inflation rate is not a natural or inevitable one. Isn't it funny though, that the central banks and people, if you watch CNNBC, even Bloomberg, they'll use natural, that word all the time when talking about this. That's intentional because it's not natural, but they want you to think this is how the order of things are, that this exists in the background and we're uncovering a truth. And this truth is 2%. Nah, that's bullshit. It's completely made up. But a choice made by policymakers, which is what I just said, this choice is based on their interpretations of economic theory. 
their judgments about the trade-offs involved. This is what it's all about because there's trade-offs. Someone's winning and someone's losing. Again, winning and losing is another sort of normative stance that we're making judgments on that aren't necessarily transcendental and just exist. What's who's winning and who's losing? That's, that's all about context and framing again. And their views about what is best for the economy. Okay. As such, it's important to critically examine these choices to consider who they benefit and who they disadvantage and who to engage in democratic dialogue about what our economic goals should be and how to achieve them. This has been great. That's what we're doing. We're critically examining this right now together. All right. Thank you, ChatGPT. You've been great. Let's bring it back in here. So back to where we started. It's funny. I had about three other things I wanted to do and I have it all set up here. Let's go back to this original tweet. A different framing of the dual mandate is to use central bank's ability to coordinate economic activity to produce the minimum size of the, for the reserve army of labor that will maintain labor discipline in order to maximize exploitation, avoid unrest with high unemployment. Now, here's my response to this. I'm going to scroll up a little bit here. So to me, this is an uncontroversial view of the role of the Federal Reserve regarding the dual mandate. They have made a normative decision. Well, Congress made it for them to use labor as a mechanism through which to ensure maximum exploitation and avoid unrest. And then I said this cultural shift was made easy by the Chicago boys moving the narrative from civic architecture responsibility to the polis to individual choice. Hence, it's your fault for unemployment rather than the normative dictates of Congress. That's a little sloppy. I, I'm not really good at tweeting. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I can't say what I really want to say in 280 characters. But first of all, I probably shouldn't use the Chicago boys because they are a specific arm of, of what came out of the, the Chicago School of Economics with Milton Friedman and the whole idea of free markets, individual choice. But what I'm trying to say is, is that this dual mandate came out in the 70s, late 77. And what it does, though, it makes, it doesn't have to be. But the Federal Reserve has decided to use employment, which is labor, which is you and I, as the mechanism through which they will control inflation. So that's human beings, right? So you and I are the tool. We're the objects or the object through which the Federal Reserve controls inflation. I think that's incredibly, incredibly, what's the word I want to use? Barbaric. Let's go back to the top real quick because he says up here, uh, he says here, right here, what is called the liquidation. The phrase he conceded sounds a little bit offensive. Let's think about this. We are being used as our human lives, our dreams, our desires, our, de our desire to work is being manipulated and controlled by the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve. Your ability to get a job and not to get a job is being directly influenced by what they consider the appropriate stable rate of inflation, which they arbitrarily have chosen to be 2%. Now, if it gets away from that 2% on the upside, they will use everything in their power to increase unemployment, to lower the inflation rate, to privilege the owners of capital and those who extend credit. That's the world we have chosen to live in. And that's what I was trying to get to here through reviewing these tweets. Thank you. Next time, I think I might look at seller inflation uh, by Isabella Weber. If there's something else you want me to talk about, please put it in the comments and, I, and I'll, I'll do it. I'm having fun doing these. I hope you're enjoying them as much as I am producing them. Thank you. Bye-bye.